hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. I'm your host, Cameron Nagel, and I want to say thank you guys so much for an amazing 2021. This is the last episode of 2021, and another big shout out to our sponsor, Human Scale, the leading ergonomic manufacturer who's been supporting the show for the entire year. If you follow me on socials such as LinkedIn, you might have seen me announce a major event I have coming up. I'm hosting Starting Small Summit in partnership with my university. We're flying out Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, Stacy Madison, founder of Stacy's Pita Chips and Be Bold Bars, and Dr. Jonathan B. Levine of Glow Science and JBL New York City. I hope to see all of you there with your teams. It's gonna be an amazing entrepreneurship conference. I cannot wait. April 13th, 2022. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Kevin Lee, co-founder of Emmy, reinventing the iconic instant ramen. Emmy is a better-for-you ramen with 21 grams protein, 6 grams net carbs, and of course, plant-based. Noticing health problems arise and this being a major part of his family's culture, this led Kevin to start Emmy as it is today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Lee of Emmy. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Cameron. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. So uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I was actually born in Northern California uh, in a place called San Jose. Um, My parents immigrated here from Taiwan. um, And so something that Taiwanese uh, immigrants typically do at a very young age when you're born is they leave you with your grandparents um, in Taiwan. Uh, as they try to make their way in America and, you know, build a life here um, with with their you know lack of financial and social capital. And so a lot of my childhood I did spend with my grandparents um, in their produce farms out in Taiwan. So we our, our grandparents grow something called a rose apple, which is just like a porous fruit native to the Southeast Asian regions mm-hmm. um, and had many a fun uh, childhood times just kind of running through the fields, picking, stemming, packaging fruit, uh, yeah. helping my grandparents with that. Definitely. Uh, with that, would you see in an entrepreneurial mindset? Uh, of course, you were working in the field with them with the fruits. Were you doing any of the internal work as well? No. So that was actually not something I had much exposure to apart okay. from like, you know, we'd come, we'd go sell it to the, you know, to the market, but yeah. uh, I didn't deal with any of the administrative stuff. Uh, I would say it was a pretty rural farm, not nothing crazy sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't get to learn the mechanics of the food industry that well. Definitely. So growing up, how long were you overseas and when eventually did you come to the States? Did you study over there as well? No. So um, I actually was, uh, I, I studied in America um, in California and um, you know, San Jose was where I went to primary school up until, and then high school, we moved, you know, a little bit north, this place called Fremont. Okay. Um, and then I ended up doing uh, university uh, in, in Berkeley. So I basically stayed in Northern California my whole life. Got it. Uh, with your time at UC Berkeley, uh, what did you study there? Uh, I was a, biz- a business administration major, and then I did a, um, I guess you'd call it a minor in, uh, it was industrial engineering. Um, okay. At the time, it, it, was, it was a certificate that we had, and so it was a good opportunity for me to learn um, linear optimization, like you know how you take these qualitative problems, turn them into like quantitative problems, identify bottlenecks. Uh, so it was a very ops-focused type yeah. of function, not true engineering by any regard, <laughs> um, but um, I think it really spurred a love of um, like you know understanding systems and Definitely. like productivity. Uh, things that we try to bring into our company today. 
Definitely. Uh, with your time there, were you involved with any athletics or clubs? Uh, not necessarily athletics. I did do a few business organizations, um, but uh, and and also like case. Uh, we we did these mm -hmm. like case presentations where you would compete. Yeah. Um, so I did, uh, you know, represent um, our school and go international and and do some of these, and that was also a fun experience. Definitely. Uh, following your time at UC Berkeley and prior to Emmy, what kind of jobs uh, were you working? Yeah, I um, so I I actually spent most of my time in finance in the early days. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, in school, when I was studying business administration, um, I started teaching personal finance to uh, high school students in the area. Um, I taught a uh, basically like a stocks class. Um, it was an accredited class um, at Berkeley for about two years. Okay. Um, and so that was a really fun process. I really enjoyed teaching and um, it got me, um, I was always interested in like investing and definitely started. So post-college, um, I, I basically, my first role was um, in, in a banking job um, out in Palo Alto, their tech banking group. Um, I only lasted eight months. Um, so okay. I shortly after I moved into tech and we can talk about that in a second. But yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm really fascinated. I was looking at some of your work with something you started called Product uh, Project Manager HQ. Um, I'm curious on how this venture started, uh, kind of remaining or mainly around educating in the project manager space and this community built. How did this kind of start? Yeah. Um, so first thing is it's, it's Product Manager HQ product. versus okay. Yeah. okay, my bad. Uh, no, it's no, 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 not at all. It's a, it's a funny thing. Um, a lot of people actually will sometimes mix project and product, and there's like definitely. there's definitely um, some distinctions. I think um, when, when my second job out of uh, after I left banking, when I was in product management, and I was yeah. actually new to the industry, um, a roommate I had been living with used to be an associate product manager at Google, and I used to come home every day super late. You know, he'd be chilling on the couch, working on some presentation, and I just ask him, "Hey, what do you do?" Um, and it just got me really interested in that role. And so, uh, at the time, at the bank I was working at, um, all the social media sites were blocked except for Quora, mm. um, the Q and A platform. And yeah, on there, there was a product management category where I would just kind of read questions and answers, learn some more about the space. And I tried to, you know, when I was studying for interviews, I, I basically realized that there wasn't like a central website or resource for learning about product management. It was all mm. disparate, like individuals, blogs, yeah. or it was, you know, like random forums. Um, so uh, I, I just thought, hey, well, there really should be a central resource. And so Product Manager HQ started out as a blog. It was literally me just writing articles about like how to interview for the role. Mm. Um, and then when when people when, once I switched into the industry, a lot of my friends or even strangers would ping me and be like, "Hey, curious how you broke in without you know a tech background." And then at a certain point, I just ran out of time to do the coffees, so I yeah. just started sending them these articles, um, and that's how the initial traffic to the site grew. Um, and from there, it kind of expanded into um, you know one of the top read newsletters in the industry. Wow. Um, we built the world's first and largest product management community, wow. um, and then um, now there's a bunch of courses, certifications. Um, I can't take credit for like, you know, some of the recent things that have happened because uh, about a year ago, year or two ago, um, I brought on two business partners who uh, basically have just grown it and I've become more of a silent partner. But yeah, that was a very fun experience, kind of bootstrapping something from the ground up, um, just purely SEO and community building. Definitely. Yeah. With that community building, I'm curious, what platform were you mainly using to uh, converse between those who would join the community as well? Yeah, I, I think anyone looking for to to build a community, um, 
a lot of people dwell on like the platforms or the products or the apps that you use. And I think that's yeah. actually what's more important is to understand, okay, well, where does like, what are the work streams that your community already lives in? Mm. Um, and like, you don't want to, you don't want people to deviate too much from what like is already in their natural, natural flow. So yeah. at the time product managers, we were all accustomed to working in Slack because that's where, you know, our engine design, basically the entire product team works in Slack. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it'd be weird if you, you as a product manager had to like tab into a Facebook group in the middle of the day to Definitely. like participate in a community. It just makes you look like you're not working. And so yeah, I figured, hey, you know, run this on. This was back in the day when Slack was just starting out as a company. I had heard about it because some of our engineers were like starting to use it. Mm. And so I was like, oh, well, we might as well just start this community within Slack. Now there's thousands of them. But, Definitely. Um, you know, back in back in 2012, 2013, um, it was still relatively new. Definitely. With that platform, were, was there any monetization or monetization at all, or was this com straightly just community building and a relationship? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. The first, I would say, the first thousand members was um, entirely free. It was yeah. honestly an experiment. Um, Definitely. At the time, it was just like, hey, let's see if we can get. And it started out with like fifty of my friends, who then invited other friends, and then it just started growing from there. Yeah. Um, around the a thousand member mark. Um, what happened is we started getting spammed basically like people would join the community spam their product or whatever like app they were working on yeah um, and then like just like immediately bounce and so we started instituting a 25 dollars lifetime fee it, that has never changed that's been like that since the beginning and yeah it completely changed the quality of participants where i'm sure once you have some skin in the game you're just like okay now i gotta participate <laughs> i can't like randomly spam people so definitely surprisingly has done wonders yeah definitely so I'm fascinated in uh, 2019, this is where Emmy comes. And with such a history in banking, uh, investing, how did you enter the food and beverage industry? And what made you fascinated with entering uh, that? And what void did you notice? Yeah, the food industry, um, you know, it's funny. I don't think I would have expected five, you know, ish years ago or even the decade that I've been working in the tech industry, I never thought um, I'd end up working in the food industry. Yeah. Um, you know, people say like, well, okay, your grandparents are in the food industry, but, you know, working on a farm is completely different uh, from running a CPG company. And so we yeah. didn't have any prior experience, but my co-founder, um, his name is also Kevin. So uh, we append our last names. I, I call him K-Chan. He calls me K-Lee. Um, <laughs> both of us met um, again, like 10 years ago at, at that first tech company, it, it was a mobile gaming company called Caban. We were both product managers and we became close friends. We were roommates. He lives like 10 minutes away from me in SF now. Both of us actually come like his grandparents were also in the food industry. And in fact, his dad used to run a Thai restaurant in LA selling noodles as well. Okay. And so both of us a few years ago, um, uh, you know, we're, we're early thirties now, but like few years ago, we noticed that in our families, there were just very high rates of chronic health conditions. So mm. um, like pre-diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity. Um, and it kind of just got us thinking like, well, you know, we both can't, you know, we have these like family origins in the food business. Um, we both are paying so much attention to health and wellness now because of our own families. Mm. Um, is there an opportunity to build a better for you food and beverage brand? But not just like another, you know, protein bar brand with like American flavors, like strawberry. Or, like we grew up in these Asian food families, and um, you know, we just we know the Asian food industry, we know these Asian flavors and cuisines. Why don't we do what we know best, which is like create something in our culture that is better for you? Yeah. And it also fit what was going on with the macro trends in the food industry. Um, 
you know, K-Chan, uh, before Emmy, he was a lead product manager at Facebook where he was starting to see even just like anecdotally across all the ad platforms, like, yeah, food, like the CPG industry for food and beverage was just growing. Like people were obviously willing to shop for food products online. It, yeah. So it doesn't, it's like kind of a no brainer now, but like, definitely, you know, if you think back a few years ago, it's still a relatively new concept, especially pre COVID. Um, for myself, when I was at my previous venture firm, Pair Ventures, um, our second fund started investing in better for you food and beverage. And then I ended up leading that, you know, their food and beverage investing practice. And I was seeing that, you know, when we were speaking with like buyers at these groceries, they were saying, look, Asian flavors are like the number one most requested flavor right now. Wow. Um, a lot of that probably comes from what's been going on in the media. Obviously, you have things like Squid Games or like the new, you know, the Marvel movie Shang-Chi, like Crazy yeah. Asians. More awareness in media obviously is going to lead to like more awareness around the food. Um, yeah. And so Asian cuisine was the number one fastest growing cuisine in America. And so all these things kind of culminated where we were like, okay, we got to like, let's see if we can build a better for you, like Asian American food brand. And instant ramen was not too far off of like a concept for us because we grew up eating that stuff. I'm sure yeah. if you ask any stranger on the street, they've probably had it at some point in their lives. Of course. Um, it's like a $46 billion industry that no one pays attention wow. to um, because it's the same three conglomerates who basically sell the exact same formulation they've sold for the past 60 years. Yeah. Um, they don't need to change it because it's still just as popular. People want like love the taste, but yeah. it's just kind of a category right for like innovation. Definitely. So that's what we basically spent the past two years doing is we went heads down on R and D and um, I'm probably jumping the gun here, but no, no uh, that's kind of the, ge the genesis around him. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, mentioning that you didn't really have much prior experience. Uh, what did the prototyping process look like for you and your co-founder to discover what was the right uh, formulation of ingredients? Yeah, we don't, uh, neither of us have food science or chef backgrounds. Uh, yeah. We are, of course, in, very interested in the food industry. Um, but both of us did what anyone else would do when they're trying to learn something for the first time, which is we went straight to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> like We quite literally typed in like how to make instant ramen. Yeah. And we just watched like videos of factories and like, like all these like home chefs trying to make it from scratch. And we just copied their steps in the beginning. Like, we were like, look, we don't even know how to make like a proper ramen noodle. Like, let's just copy someone and make sure we know how to make like, the basis of it yeah. from there we started to buy like every type of ingredient we could find on amazon um we read research papers like my co-founder would find these chinese and japanese noodle research papers and we would translate them using google translate wow and then like or with my limited chinese and then we would just like piece it together try to follow the instructions and then make variations of different noodles so the first 200 iterations we made in our own kitchens and a lot of wow. people don't believe us but we have like, I documented all the photos. Like I took photos of every single variation because <laughs> we love to build in public. It's like really important to us. Definitely. And, um, that was just like a very fun journey. We have a lot of good memories just like messing around in our kitchens to, to get to that point. Definitely. Um, with a better for you ramen, especially, and I'm sure a lot of those YouTube videos were traditional ramen, uh, instant ramen. How did you discover to differ that and still maintain a flavor that was satisfactory? Yeah, this is a great question. I think, you know, it, it's in, uh, I, I think that one thing in the food industry that obviously differs a lot from the tech industry is like this concept of like leverage and how, you know, you can, you can use an elegant piece of code to like make something, uh, make like a piece of software, like 10 times, a hundred times more efficient yeah. in food. You are limited by food physics. Like, Definitely. you know, if you, if you, imp if you add protein here, that means that textually it may d deteriorate here. Like it's, mm. 
it's generally like a it can be a zero sum game in that regard. Yeah. And so I think for us, you know, we we did definitely within like I think at like iteration 100, we hit this like basically this local maximum in our food science like knowledge, whatever limited knowledge there was <laughs> there. And we actually did have to go find like a food science PhD and a chef advisors. Um, and it's not like they came and they were like, oh, here's how you make the farm. Like actually um, food scientists are, are kind of like developers in the tech industry. Like they each specialize in one thing or like maybe a, a small handful of things, yeah. but no one is really like the noodle specialist food scientist who's going to solve your problem. So yeah. really what they did was they actually just gave us like tools, um, additional tools in our toolkit, AKA the chef was like, Hey, you have tried these like 20 proteins, but did you know that there's like five other proteins that are pretty novel in the market? That like, there's no way we would have known about unless we worked in the industry. Yeah. And then the food science PhD was like, hey, you guys are making like two formulations per hour because you have to like mix the dough, roll it out, let it rest for like 30 minutes and yeah. then like sheet it, cut it. He's like, did you know that if you did like these simple tweaks, you could produce like 10 formulations an hour. And so when you have a broader range of ingredients, and a broader range of like processes to speed up your throughput, mm. you can imagine that cr allows you to create like many more iterations at a much faster pace. Yeah. And that allows you to then get to um, like uh, just basically different formulations much faster. And it's, it, it just sped us up so much, so much more. And definitely, I, I don't think I answered your original question, but it was more so like when you're allowed to like fail multiple times, but faster, um, your velocity increases and you're like, yeah. you're just going to get to your solution much faster. So of course, I don't, maybe we could have brute forced this if it took us like four years, but luckily we were able to shorten that to like one and a half years. <laughs> and so, definitely. Yeah. So at the start of that prototyping and all the different iterations, how long would you say from prototype to launch? How long was that period there? God, it was a long time. We, um, yeah. so we worked nights and weekends, um, for about eight months just to get to what we thought was an acceptable formula. And this is my advice for like any food founder out there is like everything you make in your kitchen likely is not going to be replicable, like in a manufacturing setting. So yeah. rather than do things sequentially where you're like create a formula, then approach a manufacturer, it's like, you should just do these in parallel. Like you got to find a manufacturer, even if you're worried, like, why would they take me on if I don't have a base formulation? If you can sell them on your vision and your dream, like most co-manufacturers have like an R and D team that's going to work with you to help like adjust your formula and get it to something that works in their machines. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, because we did things sequentially and we made that mistake, um, it took us basically like after those eight months, we went full time. It took us like another year just to get, you know, the first version of Emmy out in the market. And mm. the first version was not great. Like we, like when we say not great, it means it did not appeal to a mainstream audience. When we did our, when we did our testing of the product within our private community, we knew that if you were low carb keto or like otherwise carb restricted, like a diabetic, mm -hmm. you still liked the product because you literally had no other options. And yeah. so like this was better than nothing, but we knew that to get to like a mainstream adoption would require a lot more work. And part of that was also because COVID happened. So mm. we originally wanted to like go international for manufacturing. The borders got shut down. So we had to find this like local manufacturer that had zero experience in instant ramen. And we had to like <laughs> figure out how to make it. And it just, that's what created like a subpar product in the beginning. But, you know, then from there, it took us another eight months of like redoing the formula, setting up a new supply chain with a new manufacturer. And that's the version we have now in the market. 
um, that we launched a few months ago. And that's the one that's had like rave reviews from like chefs, influencers, celebrities, like your everyday person in middle America. But it, I mean, long story short is it took us about like, you know, another year and a half to two years, it felt like just to get like a good product in the market. Definitely. What would you say was your main marketing strategy then? Uh, Getting that new product, especially with the second uh, version, uh, with the version that you're excited about and customers are raving about. What was the marketing strategy there? So I'd say a big piece of this was just this idea of like building in public. Um, I think it's a scary thing for some founders who it's just like not a natural way of how they do things. Like, you know, a lot of my friends, they're like introverts or it's not in their DNA to be like, Hey, I spent like a you know, full day doing research. I'm going to now go like tweet about it or like I'm going to go post in my private Facebook community about like with a photo of what I did today. Yeah. To some, it feels like a little showboaty. But I mean, I think there's ways you can do that elegantly where it's just like, look, people want to be involved in the process. right? Definitely. They want to know what's going on behind the scenes. It, it's not rocket science. But, you know, in our private community, we literally posted like photos or videos of us like driving to like a mixer where we got like where we blended a bunch of ingredients together. It's not super like sexy or anything, but yeah. it's fun for someone who's like, you know, following your journey and they get to see from like conception all the way to like product and market. Definitely. So our our, our um, private community grew from zero to 4,200 people like organically. And it was just people who were interested in following our process. And a lot of them ended up becoming our evangelists when we launched. Hmm. Like a fun story we always say is when we first launched, um, we, we had some Facebook ads, and there were in, in every Facebook ad, there's always trolls, like Definitely. people who just like are going to come on troll immediately. And we would see our Facebook community members come on and basically like pile in and like <laughs> defend us like on our behalf. Wow. And be like, they'll be like, I've known the Kevins for a year. Like they don't really know us, but they they kind of like they would follow us in, yeah. in the, you know, in the community. And they were like, there's no way that they would like, you know, do this or like they have like all their customers best interests at heart. And it was just like really fun to see. Um, these people come defend you um, because you've you know, been building in public, you've built a relationship with them over time. Mm. I think that's the power of having that community. Definitely. Um, so we did a lot of that. I think the other thing was we spent a lot of time building our email list in conjunction with R&D. Mm. This is the other thing I think it's really important to do is just like, you know, everyone's going to hold up for a period of time. If you're doing anything that requires product innovation, doesn't matter if you're in CPG or not, like it requires deep work. Yeah. But simultaneously you should be building demand right and it's like those things don't have to come at a cost of one another like usually there's going to be downtime when you're doing r d sure you can use that time to then like do the things we talked about like hosting in a private community going on subreddits like replying to people driving them to a landing page to sign up for email list so we had a waitlist an email waitlist around like thirty-five thousand people by the time we launched because we took the time to to do the building in public mm-hmm. um to aggregate demand while we were doing the r d amazing with that uh, feedback from marketing, what would you say is the main demographic then for Emmy? So it used to be the case that when we first launched, it was like that low carb, you know, like keto carb restricted audience. And it also skewed like 70, 30 of female versus male. Okay. Um, I would say the age demographic was also, you know, probably in like the 35 to 65 range. Um, and these were customers, uh, across like probably all of America, I would say now it's probably shifted where it's more so like 50, 50 male, female, it's expanded. The age range has expanded to 25 plus. Okay. Um, so there's definitely like, you know, a younger audience that's now eating the product. Um, I would say the core audience generally is still probably like health minded. Yeah. Um, but we've seen that anyone really who's had ramen at some point in their life, but like stopped eating it 
is now coming back. That, that's actually literally the, the phrases we see in all of our reviews is like, <laughs> I used to eat ramen, but I stopped as an adult or like stop when I realized how terrible it was. Yeah. Like, thank you, Emmy, for bringing ramen back to my life. Wow. And that audience can be anyone, anywhere. Um, and that's actually like one of the reasons why we love ramen is because I don't think we've met a single person where, where we've like, we brought up instant ramen or ramen. They've been like, no, I hate that. Like almost everyone loves the idea of ramen. Yeah. Um, because they've either had it or they've just like tried a ramen restaurant. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the nice thing about this category. For sure. Uh, from the customer's POV then, does Emmy, the, does it, or does it correlate with uh, traditional ramen, uh, instant ramen, where it's water in a bowl, microwave, et cetera, or how does that look preparing? Yeah, it is. Um, it's definitely microwavable. Um, you can boil it on a stovetop. Okay. It takes seven minutes, which is definitely longer than traditional instant ramen. Yeah. One of the reasons for that is because we have 21 to 22 grams of protein yeah. um, in the noodle itself. Um, it's also like 18 to, 19, 18 to 19 grams of fiber, and it's only five to six grams of net carbs. Mm. So most people don't know what any of that means in the context of like, if you don't study macronutritional information. So effectively, we just say it's like three to four times the amount of protein. It's like four to like eight times the amount of fiber. And it's basically like 85% less in carbs than your like traditional instant ramen. So Definitely. those tend to put things in perspective. Um, but yeah, it definitely takes a little bit longer to prepare. Um, and we think that trade-off is worth it for, for the sure. health. Looking at Emmy today, uh, what would you say is the top seller flavor-wise? Yeah, so when we first created our flavors, um, two of the flavors were like very near and dear to our hearts. Um, spicy beef is actually based off like my Taiwanese heritage. We In Taiwan, like uh, spicy beef noodle soup is like this kind of, it's almost like, a, I don't want to call it like the country dish, but it's definitely yeah. like a, a dish that's very well known. Um, and then in Thailand, um, tom yum is obviously very like it's it's a popular dish, and so K Chan really wanted that tom yum shrimp. Um, we did do a lot of demand testing around these flavors as well, just to know that like hey, these are the right flavors. But mm -hmm. those two were kind of like non-negotiables for us. Yeah. The third one, black garlic chicken, was it's an homage to like Japanese traditional flavors um, of ramen, and that one. You know, I don't know if it's the branding. I don't know if it's because it's chicken, which is one of the most popular. But that one, of course, is our best seller. Okay. Um, it is a delicious flavor. Um, I think Kate and I just happen to be loyal to to the ones that we created from our heritage. Definitely. So I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, uh, something you've learned or regret, uh, what would that be? Hmm, something I learned or regret. Um, yeah, I think... For me, and maybe this might, won't resonate with 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 everyone, but um, I used to have a lot of anxiety about running a startup, and the anxiety comes from the fact that as human beings, uh, we want to know what the outcome of something is going to be. Right, that yeah. level of security gives us that comfort, and startups are uncertainty generating machines. Um, you will never really know the outcome of something. You know, every milestone you unlock kind of just unlocks more problems. And if you don't take control of that anxiety, it will control you. Hmm. And so, you know, my, I liken it to like, if you ever played a computer, like there's some computer games where when you start out, there's something called fog of war. Like you're literally like, you're this one character, you can't see the rest of the map. It's all blacked out. And that's like the fog of war. Yeah. And then every step you take in one direction, like the clouds kind of disappear and you can see more. Um, and the fog of war disappears, but only in the area surrounding you. And you really just have to trust that 
with every step, you're going to be able to solve the problem that appears underneath that fog of war. If you trust that you can address and solve every problem that comes with each step, you don't need to feel that anxiety that like you don't have to have the entire map cleared where all the fog of war is gone. In fact, that would be kind of boring. Yeah, um, that removes the whole excitement of like running a startup and, and that uncertainty. So um, that for me was like one of the biggest pieces of advice that um, a coach that I worked with gave to me. And it just relieved instantly all this like tension and anxiety that I felt on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of like just trusting ourselves as founders. Definitely. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Emmy at emmyeats.com. Thanks so much, Cameron. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.